Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. Better give a treat that's good to eat if you want to keep lights ring. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. Making my witch's brew. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like water. It is. It's liquid IV. <laughs> Everything is spooky right now. Okay? Everything is spooky. Everything has a spooky Just... counterpart. <laughs> I am spooky Kaylin. You are spooky Christian. And this is my witch's brew. And I got my witch's brew in my pumpkin mug. Mm, what's your witch's brew? It's just Kenyan coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we do what we can. We do what we have We're to. We're your spooky house, and this is spooky. That's pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Wow. We are slap happy. Slap, smack dab right in the middle of October. What a way. What a way to begin an episode. Mm. What a way to begin the episode, and what a way to end our history of Halloween series. Ooh. This is the conclusion, y'all. Part three. And uh, while you're while you're shaking. It's, it's all... Con- it's all... It's gone to the bottom. I can't uh, get the witch. I need a cauldron to better mix. This is your first time. Certainly not. I just uh, did it, you know, on camera and microphone. Therefore, it has to go wrong. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, while you're doing that, I'm going to read this spooky thing. <laughs> this spooky <laughs> Please do. Read paragraph from read to us. Lady Wild. I'm going to read one thing from Lady Wild. Why are you doing Same that? Same book that we've been referencing throughout the Same the book. Her Legends, mm-hmm. Charms, and Superstitions of Ireland. I'm not going to do the accent this time, though. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I saw you, right. like, gear up to do it and then just bail. <laughs> yeah. I'm not prepared today. <laughs> it is esteemed a very wrong thing amongst the islanders to be about on November Eve. For the fairies have their flitting then and do not like to be seen or watched. And all the spirits come to meet them. But mortal people should keep at home, or they will suffer for it. For the souls of the dead have power over all things on that one night of the year, and they hold a festival with the fairies, and drink red wine from the fairy cups, and dance to fairy music till the moon goes down. Mm. Yeah. Knowing what I know about fairies, I don't think I would drink their wine. <laughs> Mm-mm. I don't want anything they got. Nah. Except for the scary stories. Sounds like they have a good time, though. I bet it's a lot of fun. Dance in the graveyards. I'm sure it's all right. Mm-hmm. I've spent worse evenings. Yeah, me too. That's for sure. Where we left off in part two, Halloween in the British Isles had officially become a secular night of old tradition and ancient superstition. From the increasingly violent nature of the night's more festive celebrations to the seductive yet often terrifying fortune-telling rituals of unwed youths. Youths. Those were fun. Those were really fun, actually. I've been thinking about them a lot. <laughs> I had fun with those. <laughs> been trying them out, listener? Let us know. Let us know. Let us know what's been appearing in your mirror. But at the same time, those traditions and superstitions had been slowly seeping across the Atlantic to the Americas for hundreds of years. 
The Spanish conquistadors brought All Saints Day to Latin America, which ultimately combined with native traditions there to create the sprawling Dias de los Muertos. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church brought La Toussaint to Louisiana, which is still observed today in its own particularly Creole way. Mm -hmm. And that just, La Toussaint just means All Saints Day, basically. Mm -hmm. And the Protestant English brought Guy Fawkes Day to New England because it still served as a reminder of their moral superiority over the Catholics. Of course, and we don't like to let go of our moral superiority mm -hmm. whenever we find it. Can't let that go. I'm using the royal we. I don't actually feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> royal we. <laughs> what else do we have if we don't have our pious tendencies? Mm. Mm. What's interesting about that, though, is that they'd rebranded it as Pope Night. Oh, Interesting. Pope Night was most popular in the seaport towns of New England, and there'd be the usual drinking and burning effigies of the Pope, but there'd also be rioting and anti-elite protesting by the working class, hmm. including the extortion of wealthy homeowners. Aha! So we see that trend continuing on again and again and again. The first recorded Pope Night was in 1623, roughly 18 years after Guy Fawkes was hanged. And it was celebrated broadly in New England until the American Revolutionary War. Wow. Yeah. That's many years. <laughs> <laughs> many years. To do the exact math, that's many, many, many years. Roughly, I don't know, 150, something like that. 150, okay. Lisa Morton, the author of our uh, main source, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, she says in her book that American leaders in the Revolutionary War, including George Washington, were opposed to the festival since they feared its celebration might offend the religious sensibilities of their French allies. Mm. So it was really all about protecting Interesting. our friendship with the French, who were still Catholic. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all, it's tough because like I've been saying all along, it's possible to disagree with people and still get along with them. It is possible. You, know, you can't you can't always think the same as everybody around you. In fact, it's really unhealthy if you do, if you <laughs> find yourself in a situation or a circle that everybody, you know, it's like copy and paste. Yeah. So it's possible. If there's no room to grow, you can't grow. Exactly. But scattered Pope Night celebrations continued until the 1890s, randomly and, you know, rarely. But by then, it had lost so much of its original meaning that its name had been degraded to Pork Night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And wow. I couldn't find any proof of this. I searched everywhere. I tried to find proof that that's the origin of the beloved American backyard barbecue. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I don't think it is. I think I'm I'd be shocked. making that up. I'd be shocked. The time of year isn't quite right. Not quite right. But you know we love a barbecue. We do. <laughs> now, the Protestants and Puritans of New England had rigid belief systems that dominated much of the New World. These restrictions didn't allow for Catholic holidays or pagan festivals, of which Halloween was decidedly both. Absolutely. So over time, Halloween was largely forgotten by New England. Um, but Maryland and a few southern colonies were still predominantly Catholic and continued to celebrate All Hallowtide. As they damn well pleased. <laughs> However, whether in relation to or in addition to the religious observances, a few sources say that secular harvest-related events were also celebrated in the U.S. And these supposedly consisted of your average bonfires, stories of the dead, and childish mischief. Harvest celebrations on the whole, in general, would make sense after the Revolutionary War, because the early U.S. economy was largely agricultural. 
until the American wave of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So we put just as much emphasis on a successful crop here as anywhere else in the world. For sure. And still do in a lot of places, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of the backbone of our nation. It's like what we're built on, essentially. The whole new world was built on the import-export trade mm -hmm. of everything we had to offer here. Um, the Industrial Revolution changed it you know, in a lot of terms, but it also, you're never going to be able to go without farming crops, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You can't, a society can't function. Right, right. And this is the same era we get like piracy mm -hmm. because that's how many like ships were going across the Atlantic all the time. And speaking of all these fun new things, we had many new crops to offer the world during uh, what's now known as the Columbian Exchange. Do you remember having to like learn these imports and exports and list them out? Yeah, for like vaguely. tests in school and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I this like weirdly pinged. I did uh, very little of it. Yeah, I feel like I did so much more like history in elementary and middle school. Yeah, I don't know why. I feel like in high school, I did a lot of literature and a lot of my literature classes counted, like gave me a history credit and stuff. Right, right. So it's it was it took a long time. Interesting. Like I've been away from it for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. well, you might remember some of these. We've got turkeys, like <laughs> tobacco, <laughs> potatoes, um, and there are grains, coffee, cattle, mm -hmm. and disease. I remember mm -hmm. oh, yeah. putting disease on my, <laughs> on my test and being like, yeah. I can't believe we were importing disease. That's ridiculous. <sighs> but there were three significant exports that we had to offer Halloween history. Mm. These are corn, <laughs> cacao, uh -huh. cacao. And pumpkins. I was I almost said pumpkins. I was yeah. hoping that it was pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> and cacao, of course, makes cocoa, which makes chocolate. Mm -hmm. In 1820, decades before Halloween officially arrived in America, Washington Irving's story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, yes. immortalized the grinning pumpkin head mm -hmm. or the concept of a pumpkin head. 30 years later, in 1850, John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, The Pumpkin, describes carving wild, ugly faces into pumpkins and burning candles inside and telling fairy stories by their firelight. Yes. By 1898, Martha Russell Orne had recommended making jack-o'-lanterns from an assortment of fruits and vegetables in a groundbreaking pamphlet called Halloween, How to Celebrate It. <laughs> and by 1912... Thanks for your help. <laughs> Well, they didn't know. Americans didn't know. Yeah, you got to teach us. And by 1912, Mary Blaine's Games for Halloween officially recommended pumpkins as the jack-o'-lantern of choice. I love that. Me too. Oh my gosh. As you're saying that, I, there's this, like, the guidebook. You know, we've kind of lost that art the oh, yeah. further we get into internet culture. And you can find anything you want at the click of a button. Mm -hmm. But I remember like my my mama, my dad's mom, yeah. um, she would always have like a book that was like party games or something like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. She'd have it on her bookshelf. Um, there was one that was like, uh, I don't know if it was ghost stories. It was like, maybe it was ghosty, ghost crafts or something. Interesting. And it had like... I, I just remember that being like on her shelf of having that book. I want and that. <laughs> because people weren't learning these things on the internet, they were being published in books and that's right. how they were getting around. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I totally, I think that's so cool. And funny enough, we're going to talk a lot about how that culture built Halloween in America. Wow. Because it's, it's the meme culture, but it's just offline. But that's where the timeline is going. First, we have to know exactly how it got on that haunted road in the first place. 
and it's only fitting that a holiday with origins and giving thanks for a bountiful harvest would find itself transformed and reborn with a distinctly American identity as a result of one of the most devastating famines we have on record. Not to mention all the continued death that seems to perpetually propel the evolution of this holiday. Mm. This devastation is the Great Irish Famine, known to many of us as the Irish Potato Famine. Mm -hmm. In 1845, a disease known as potato blight began to ravage Ireland's staple crop, causing an onslaught of starvation and absolute horror that lasted for seven years. My God. One million Irish died, and another million left, many of which immigrated to the U.S., and over the next 50 years, nearly half a million Scots also immigrated mm-hmm. to the U.S. Can I tell you a fun fact related to potatoes? It may be a little bit irreverent in relation to the potato famine. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me. Come on. We love the reverence here on That's Pretty Dark. <laughs> I uh, have seen it online recently, and I did fact check it, and then somebody else had fact check it to be tr- be sure. Yeah. But apparently, baked potato and butter... Like if you have a baked potato and butter, Mm -hmm. you can survive on that. That has all of the nutrients and vitamins that you need to survive and sustain life. Just that alone. I believe that. Potatoes are amazing. No, they're fantastic. (laughs) That's fantastic. And I I read about it. I can't remember all the specifics. I should have written it down. But basically like it it prevents scurvy because it has, you know, certain vitamins. It it prevents certain diseases that are common if you are malnourished in any other way. Yeah. But potatoes and butter. Well- I mean, so when I make my depression meal of a baked potato <laughs> in the microwave, I feel less bad about it. <laughs> no, going off of that, that's why the well. So it wasn't the only food the Irish had. It's a staple. But many people only had potatoes to eat, mm-hmm. like one meal a day, and it was potatoes every day. Yeah, and see, and that's why there are so many different ways to cook. I was, potatoes I was about to say there's so many ways to make a potato. They had to and invent I, new ways. I could do that. I think. I think I, I have would, enough ADHD. <laughs> In my head, <laughs> that I can make potatoes my safe food forever. I do love potatoes, but like, oh, you know, speaking of memes, all those memes that go around of like all the different ways that I love potatoes and like all these like <laughs> basic white girls in modern day. It's true. Have no idea where that came from and that desperation came from and that need. But potatoes are important. And very important. Very yeah. important. <laughs> irreverent to bring up during discussion of a potato famine, I feel like, but... I don't know. Important nonetheless. Now you know, listener, if you didn't know already. Potatoes kept them alive. And when they didn't have them, unfortunately. Unfortunately. On the whole, it's these starving Celtic descendants settling into the new world, bringing with them their old world customs, traditions, and superstitions that we have to thank for all of our frightfully nostalgic, cozy Halloween memories of candy, costumes, and scary movies. Mm. So thanks, all you... Starving, (laughs) potato-eating heroes. We're grateful for you. Heroes. In fact, just like the Christianization of the Celts, without the Irish famine, there's likely no modern-day Halloween. It's crazy. At best, we'd have some manual autumn traditions that are vaguely spooky as we prepare for the darker, colder days of winter. The harvest traditions would have been given to the American Thanksgiving, while the aspects of fear would have been fully absorbed by Christmas, which already has a long history of being associated with nostalgia and other hauntings. Wow. It gave us a place to land with everything else. Exactly. But before Halloween truly gained its foothold in America, it was the folk traditions of the Irish and the Scottish that paved the way. To retain some semblance of normalcy, they took up the old practices and found comfort in not only the familiarity 
of the holiday and the distraction of the celebrations, but also the commemoration of the ancestors and relatives they'd had to say goodbye to an entire world away. Mm -hmm. They set places for the dearly departed at dinner tables and left offerings out on their doorsteps to appease any unfamiliar spirits in the new world. Mm -hmm. and soon, the story of Stingy Jack and the traditions of carving turnips merged with the already established autumnal carving of pumpkins, which, uh, because pumpkins are already hollow and much easier to carve, mm -hmm. they embraced the pumpkin right. as the new jack-o'-lantern. Just, yeah, convenience-wise, this makes more sense. And that officially merged the pumpkin with Halloween wow. forever. It's crazy, and it makes so much sense. Like, you know, we're in episode three of A History of Halloween, but it's, it's important to realize that you can't really trace these traditions back to any one specific thing. Exactly. It was all so much merging. There was so much cultural merging. Right, right. Things that certain people liked that they took and things that other people didn't like that they got rid of. It, it was a very specific uh, soup <laughs> <laughs> to make Halloween that we know. It's a very specific potato and cabbage soup. <laughs> They also resumed the ritual of guising, going door to door in costume to delight uh, their, you know, own Scotch-Irish neighbors mm -hmm. and continue this uh, weaving of the old ways into the fabric of their new lives and the new world. They gathered around local bonfires to share stories of times past and celebrate the continuation of life. Young women found it ever more enticing to divine their own futures mm -hmm. and scry glimpses into the fate awaiting them uh, in such endless and strange potential. And young boys mustered up more and more trouble by throwing cabbages and making each other walk through graveyards and stuff <laughs> like that. Dares. Like it's just, it's fun. Questioning each other's bravery and... I dare you to walk through that graveyard. Mm. And the... American embrace of Halloween is attributed in large part to the rise of the middle class, which was first established in the aftermath of the Black Death. Yep. Thanks to the sheer amount of possessions and property and wealth that had been inherited by all of the next of kin peasantry mm -hmm. uh, that were fortunate enough to still be alive. Yep. And then the middle class itself was then given a leg to stand on during the Industrial Revolution, which just made one of so the many craziest more jobs. Things. Yeah. yeah. One of the craziest things to kind of learn about studying the Black Death, the Black Plague, is that that's essentially when the world first had a middle class. Mm -hmm. That's the first time it ever existed. It's one of the coolest things ever. And only because of luck, happenstance. Because so many people died in your family and you kept mm -hmm. in inheriting everything. Inheriting more and more wealth it's like, because people weren't alive to have it and to own it. Yeah. Then you had too much stuff to be poor, but you didn't have enough to be rich. Exactly. And you're like, and you didn't have, what is you, this you class? Didn't, you weren't born into the royalty. Right. You weren't born into those lineages. Yeah, the so aristocracy and all that. Yeah. You had some money, but you didn't have the blood. And for one reason or another, this booming middle class in America loved British culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they adored Queen Victoria and welcomed the influx of Scotch-Irish. And within a couple decades from this mass immigration, in 1869, Queen Victoria paid a famous visit to Balmoral Castle for Halloween, mm -hmm. the spectacular events of which were widely reported across much of the world, igniting a spooky bonefire in the hearts of young Americans. <laughs> and just one year later, we have the first documented accounts of American Halloween celebrations. Wow. Even if it was depicted as a children's holiday. Hey, still kind of is. Still embraced, though. We're just now kind of getting back to a, 
Adults can enjoy this holiday too. Mm-hmm. So what year was this? To be this clear? was 1870. 1870. So not that long ago at all. Not really. It's really funny. I won't get into this, but American adults embraced it as like there was a children's holiday version of it. And then there was also the adult uh, holiday version of it, just like today. You have kids yeah. parties and you have adult Halloween parties. Definitely. Um, and <laughs> the prohibition killed the uh, the adult Halloween <laughs> uh, celebration because there was no more booze. Right. So like really that's Most when- Most grownups want to have booze if they're going to be- <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise you're just- A bunch a- of adults in costumes and having a little <laughs> children's Halloween party, but you're uh, adults. <laughs> the booze makes it grown up, I guess. I guess so. Makes it adult. Emphasis on the boo. <laughs> Here for the booze. B-O-O-S. Also, boo to prohibition. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so that same year in uh, 1870, a short story appeared- in the popular Goaties Ladies Book and Magazine hmm. about a transplanted British family's Halloween party, complete with witch's broom, fortune telling, taffy pulling, and other games and treats, as well as a grand finale of a young woman's romance ritual ending in a kiss from a young man. Ooh. Ooh, getting a little <laughs> kiss, kiss. <laughs> That's what I say to Atlas now when I go to kiss Aww. his head. Oh, sweet Atlas. He doesn't like his head being kissed, so... <laughs> I'm trying to like tell him <laughs> that I'm going to do but it. You're doing, yeah, you're giving like, hey, by the way, this is coming. Incoming. Here comes a smooch. <laughs> the descriptions of this party led to many copycat parties and the collective embrace of an Americanized Halloween, which then led to a blossoming industry of how-to pamphlets and party guides for inspiration, mm-hmm. including the ones I mentioned a little while ago and the ones you mentioned from, yeah. who knows, 1980? 1970? I'm trying to, yeah, I would, to date it, it's hard to know. So my grandparents on my dad's side were both born in the 30s, and they had my pa- my my dad in the 80s. Or, whoa, they had my dad in the 60s, <laughs> yeah, so they were probably having parties in the 70s, 80s, et right, cetera. Right. Those are cool. Yeah, I wish that I had found some of those when I was cleaning out their house. I don't think I did, but I remember as a kid finding it and being like, huh, why would you need this? Mm-hmm. How do you not know? Yeah, how do, how is this just not yeah, it was so common right. knowledge to me. It didn't make sense that you'd need a guide for it, but Right. It's kind of I mean, today there are magazines that have stuff like that, you know, suggestions for games or oh, yeah. ideas and stuff. The amount of articles online that I found doing all this research is like six party games at your next Halloween party or like yeah. 10 things you can do. I mean, you, can, you can walk down the the aisle at Target now and they they make it so easy. Like things yeah. that you know, they have all these tools to carve jack-o'-lanterns. They have mm-hmm. yeah. all kinds of stuff that's like prepackaged and ready. Like, mm-hmm. what's it called? Not toss across, but where you toss it into, hmm. toss a bean bag. Oh, cornhole. Yeah, cornhole. That's it. <laughs> they have like ghostly ones of those now. Nice, nice, nice. They nice. have, uh, yeah. Capitalism. <laughs> it is. It, yeah, that's entirely just capitalism taking it and running <laughs> with it. But capitalism. it's crazy to me that it's so widespread now. It's wild. Just to see where it came from. And over the next few decades, the seeds of Halloween were sown and reaped by Americans year after year, and this particular sort of harvest spread across the nation like a plague, but in a good way, (laughs) growing and transforming into the holiday we know and love, little by little, to the point where now you can buy your cornhole games Uh at Target. With ghost faces. Your spooky cornhole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Many more books were written on Halloween party activities. Uh, Paper goods companies started selling pre-made Halloween decorations. 
the Denison Company printed annual decorating guides called bogey books that were popular for a long time. <laughs> and these detailed how to use Denison Company products <laughs> to easily decorate for your own Halloween party. There you go. Much of the Halloween iconography and imagery was established during this time thanks to picture postcards of the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s. Mm -hmm. These rose to popularity during the liminal era between gas and electricity mm -hmm. when letter writing was slowly transitioning into telephone calls. Mm -hmm. So these just became a very popular, like, happy medium. So there was a lot of emphasis on postcard art, which has always had this way of romanticizing broad concepts like holidays and depicting certain traditions in these very idealized ways that instantly trigger a sense of nostalgia. Like um, much of our classic Christmas imagery comes from early Christmas postcards depicting glowing fires, frosted windows, sleigh rides, gifts, etc. They show you the ideal. Right. It's the ideal version of what you should be celebrating, which placed it firmly into the center of the bleeding American heart. And this exact thing was done to Halloween postcards early on with these wistful depictions of children bobbing for apples or carving pumpkins and playing pranks, all of which took pages out of the successful Christmas postcards with greetings like Merry Halloween and <laughs> Jolly Halloween. Aw, <laughs> that's cute. I want them. <laughs> I know. I want to find some. I would frame them and put them around my house, truly. Well, uh, one of the pictures we posted um, this mm -hmm. past week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. was the, from the girl doing the mirror gazing ritual with the, yes. the witch's shadow on the wall. Yes. That's from a postcard from this era. Love it so much. So here are just a few of the things that these postcards popularized. We have the mirror gazing ritual, apple peeling rituals with the peel you throw over your shoulder, mm -hmm. bobbing for apples, black cats, bats. Owls, ghosts, witches, skeletons, red devils, and a whole host of harvest imagery, including corn stalks, bales of hay, scarecrows, and jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. All the good stuff. And this is where we get the first concept of a pumpkin king. Hey. Which was an anthropomorphic version of a pumpkin or a pumpkin man dressed as a king, emphasizing how the pumpkin had become Halloween's leading icon. Wow. And it was these early postcards, plus other random articles on decorating store windows and homes for Halloween that figured out Halloween's brand. Mm -hmm. And that includes the Halloween color palette. Ah, uh, yes. So there were many other color suggestions over the years. For example, in 1912, Halloween's recommended colors were brown, yellow, and white to emphasize the harvest. Interesting. That just feels very Thanksgiving. Yeah. And maybe it was just sort of transplanted over, but the matter was finally settled in 1918, just a few years later, and Halloween's official colors became black and orange. You can't get rid of the orange. No, you can't. The pumpkin's the king. <laughs> right. Black, the color of night and death. Orange, the color of the jack-o'-lantern. And also sphinxy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My cat Sphinx. That's right. He's a little orange pumpkin boy. He is an orange pumpkin boy. I love that orange pumpkin boy so much. <laughs> <laughs> I should get him a pumpkin costume. Oh my god. He'd tear he it would to hate it. He would hate it. There's no way. God, he'd destroy it. Now, like I said, one thing we know for certain is that the tradition of mischief, begging, aggression, and vandalism carried over to the US from Guy Fawkes Day in the form of Pope Night. We also know that the earliest forms of the American Thanksgiving looked a lot like this as well. 
So the stereotype of the brash American way was already well established before the Scotch-Irish immigration. However, many people still want to attribute the rise of pranks and mischief to this Scotch-Irish immigration and blame them. But just as the earliest forms of mischief were blamed on fairies and goblins, I think blaming British children were just, it was just convenient scapegoatery. Mm-hmm. Get in trouble like, I didn't do it. It was, <laughs> it was Seamus. The classic. Beginning in the 1870s, we get the first accounts of things like tying doors shut, rattling windows, hitting people with balls of baking flour, <laughs> uh, uprooting gardens, tipping over outhouses and taking apart farm equipment and putting it back together in different places like on the roof of the barn. Those darn kids. On November 1st, 1879, The Cincinnati Daily Star reported mischievous pranks all across the nation. Gate stealing, sign swapping, and noisemakers. The office building of a coal and mining company was whitewashed. Rats were hung up in the display window of a meat shop. Uh, Trash cans were emptied in the streets. Wagon wheels were hung from trees. Cats were tied together by their tails and hung from doorknobs. I hate it. I hate it. And trees were cut down and laying across front doorways so people couldn't get out of their front doors. Hmm. It's wild, wild times. But the most famous prank from this newspaper article is about a Louisville short line passenger train uh, that passed through Newport, Kentucky on Halloween. The engineer sees what looks like a man's body lying across the train tracks, forcing him to stop the train and when he gets out the check, it's a scarecrow. Of course. Basically. That is a scarecrow. It's a scarecrow that had been placed there by a, uh, a group of boys who all erupted in like shouts and laughter wow. uh, from the surrounding woods. And the whole like the poignant tag on the end of this article was like, well, the engineer just didn't say nothing to him. He just got back in the train and kept going because he remembers fondly the days when he'd play pranks just like that. Mm. And it was like. Okay. Meanwhile, I'm as you're saying this, I'm kind of imagining today, you know? Yeah. We barely let anything stop our capitalist world today. Yeah, no. And I'm imagining if people did pranks to this extent like this today, yeah. there's no way it would fly. Well, yeah, it, it gets to a point that people are like, we have to put a stop to this. Yeah. It, it gets out of For, hand. You know, I understand to an extent. Sure. We should probably be a little more chill about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shouldn't put anybody's life in danger. Shouldn't uh, block the emergency exits or anything. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, using scarecrows for Halloween pranks like this one uh, is likely one of the main reasons why scarecrows were first included in Halloween iconography. Um, not because I don't know why, not because they're just scary, but because they were used for pranks. Gotcha. I don't, I don't know. They, they, they had a purpose in the holiday. Yeah. It's funny because like eventually it did become popular to replace scarecrow heads with glowing jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. Mm. Um, I guess making your own mock-up headless horseman type thing. I've also seen it done where you dress as a scarecrow completely Mm -hmm. and then like sit on your porch and scare people. Oh, sure. Yeah, my neighbor did that. Oh, yeah, I've had neighbors do they that too. Used to too. scare us to death when we were or kids. Or they'd they'd have it where like the parent was aware of it, but the kid wasn't, and they'd sit you on the scarecrow's lap to take a picture. <laughs> that's that's trauma. No, that's trauma. No, God. No. I just I literally just saw something about that where it was like if you're manipulating the nervous system of another human and for humor, like for humor's sake, you probably shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> Mm-mm. No, I don't like pranks. I'm not a fan. You don't. You're not a prankster. You're not not a a prank person at all. I feel bad. 
for me and you, I think it's our anxiety. We like to know what's going to happen and when and how. Yeah. And if that gets upset, it's tough for us to come back. <laughs> <laughs> come back from it it is it is tough to come back from i'm it. not saying like oh you know okay like a surprise birthday cake or something like that's cool but <laughs> pranked you gotcha i got you a birthday cake yeah haha <laughs> <laughs> egg on your face <laughs> mischief. mischief yeah I'm, I'm not a big prank person myself either children in scotland ireland and now america were all observing what was known in places as cabbage night mm. which involved uh, the long-standing traditions of throwing cabbages, like eggs at houses, you know? I was going to say, which became eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, burning cabbage stalks to blow the smoke into people's houses through their keyholes. And that has to just smell god-awful. Mm. As well as tying strings around cabbages and pulling them through fields so people think that the cabbages are moving. <laughs> I think that's really funny. <laughs> They're I'm on like, the move, folks. Yeah, it's like, whoa. Did you see it's that? the annual cabbage migration. <laughs> <laughs> the pioneers used to ride these babies for miles. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sad how much I know of SpongeBob. No, I love SpongeBob. But I do. I'm proud of you. Can't help it. Mm -mm. Can't help who we are. By the turn of the century, there were guidebooks on boys' crafts that not only showed young boys how to make things like pea shooters, noisemakers, and goblin figures, whatever those are. And all the moms of the era were like, do you have to give that to my son? It was do you one have to deep do that? sigh across America. Like, oh, yeah. God. Middle school boys. Ugh. Yeah, no, they're the worst, especially on Halloween. For sure. And the most important thing is that it gave them permission. That's the thing. It's like, I'm not going to say it encouraged it, but it kind of encouraged it. It did encourage it. It at least put a stamp on it where it was like, you know, this is accepted. This is culturally okay for you to do, which we've done with a lot of things for young boys. Yeah. A we lot always of make excuses. Yeah. Boys will be boys. So it was, a, it was, uh, I read it was seen as a way for young boys to blow off steam. Because young boys need to blow off steam. Yeah. You know, young girls don't need that. Mm -mm. We just get to swallow all of our feelings. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. But the boys, let them be boys. Boys be boys, you know what I'm saying? Mm. In 1907, a group of kids pranked a house in Logansport, Indiana. They knocked on the door, prepared to thrust a burning jack-o'-lantern into the face of whoever answered. And when the daughter of the household saw the grinning pumpkin face, she screamed, startling her mother so much, it stopped her heart and she died. I've always been worried about that. That's always been a fear of mine. She was scared to death. Yeah, scared to death. The adrenaline. Mm -hmm. I get those adrenaline bursts like two or three times a day doing various things. Yeah. I don't like that. Uh, my heart just does whatever it wants to on its own and I can't control it. <laughs> I mean, here, you feel it, like skip a beat and you're like, mm -hmm. is it? Oh, I get those a lot. Is it ever going to start again? Is this mm -hmm. it? Yeah, it's bad. I have that all the time. We have anxiety, Christian. Do you know that? We do. <laughs> we have some serious anxiety. As I sip on my third cup of coffee today, just all the caffeine. <laughs> anxiety, you say? <laughs> hmm. What's that? What do you mean? In 1902, <laughs> the Cook County Herald in Arlington Heights, Illinois, encouraged folks to load their guns with rocks, salt, and birdshot and literally shoot trespassers, which was expected to curb this childish taste for such hijinks. My God. <laughs> if so you don't little, like it, just shoot them. Yeah, a little bit of an letting overcompensation. Letting the adult boys just be boys, too, does not solve the problem. This is oh, man. two wrongs don't make a right, mm -mm. in case you wondered. But what, three, three or four lefts do, right? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, but we're still at two wrongs right now on the tally, so. Speaking of left, I'm leaving. <laughs> and in 1912, a woman in Hiawatha, Kansas, 
named Elizabeth Krebs, woke up on November 1st once again to find the garden in her yard entirely uprooted, and she was sick to death of letting these pranks go on another year. So she decided to end the vandalism. But she was a bit more constructive than going around shooting kids. The next year, she used her own resources to organize a party for young people on Halloween, uh, hoping it would be enough to keep them from going out that night and wreaking havoc on the town. Makes sense. She had her party and some kids came, but the town was still vandalized all the same. So the following year, she pulled the resources of the town and got many more people involved. And they like brought in a band, held a costume contest and put on a parade. And this time it did the trick. Halloween that year was festive, not disruptive. And news spread of this success across the country. And eventually, Halloween parties became a common tradition in many towns and cities, hoping to distract the youth from their bouts of destruction. You gotta give them an outlet. So people would do these same things, including having sweets, frightening decorations of ghosts and goblins. And um, there's still a festival in Hiawatha to this day called the Halloween Frolic. And um, the folks who know about her say that old Lizzie Krebs is, quote, the mother of modern Halloween. Aw, thanks, Lizzie. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Anaka, Minnesota, also claims to have had the first official Halloween celebration. They were tired of finding a Main Street full of cows the morning after Halloween. You don't want that. So in 1920, they organized a Halloween festival that included giveaways, bonfires, and a parade. Wow. Listener, if you have lore around this in your area, please tell us about it. Mm -hmm. Does your town have the first Halloween celebration? Tell us. Or even like a big one. And how many kids died back in 1920 <laughs> that your, that, your that town's trying it. to cover up? Look, we have a party. We don't kill kids here. We celebrate children. Oh, man. How many skeletons of mm. young boys? How many ghosts are enjoying this Halloween? Ooh. By the roaring 20s, probably thanks to Prohibition. Pranks turned to outright vandalism, from breaking windows to tripping pedestrians and starting fires. Manhole covers were removed, tires were deflated, detour signs were set out to confuse motorists, and one year some kids in Kansas City waxed the streetcar tracks on a steep hill, no. causing Please, no. uh, one streetcar street car to crash into another, uh, seriously injuring the conductor. See, like a lot of people could have died. Like that's a oh yeah, this could have been very bad. That could be a, a big old marker in American history if that had gone worse. Mm. But thankfully, parents finally took charge in their own neighborhoods. Large community parties were expensive, and not every town could afford to put on big celebrations. So you know, perhaps taking pages out of the Halloween party pamphlets, neighbors came together to form something known as house-to-house -house parties. Mm. It was like a bar crawl for children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Groups of kids were led from one house to the next, and each home hosted a different sort of activity. Some houses might have costumes, like, you know, here's face paint, here's a bed sheet to be a ghost. Some houses might give out sweets, some might have pumpkin carving, or bobbing for apples, or even spooky fortune-telling games. Uh, which were still happening pretty much up until World War II. Mm -hmm. um, but catering to children in this intimate way in the suburbs is ultimately what led to the American custom of trick-or-treat. A bar call for kids. A bar just, call. That's so funny. Because <laughs> once kids were savvy to the idea that they could get special attention and treats during Halloween, they took advantage of it. Soon, it wasn't that they were being distracted from causing mischief. 
Instead, it's that they were making their demands yes. in what many now call an extortion deal. Yeah. It's like- Trick or treat. Which do you want? It's up to you. Why don't you give us treats or we're going to set your house on fire. For sure. <laughs> How's that for negotiation? Kids win. Kids, I got to say. always find a way to get whatever they want. Pester power. <laughs> Especially in America. That's right. Lisa Morton says it's super tempting to connect trick-or-treat with things like souling and guising because they look so familiar. And I'm convinced that there is that trickle because I think it affected Guy Fox, which affected uh, Bonfire Night and Pope yep. Night and how that yeah. carried over. I don't over. think you would have done one without the other. I like, think that is an easy thread to follow. Mm -hmm. But she's also suggesting that it has more recent antecedents than just those things. Okay. Like I mentioned earlier, American Thanksgiving in 1870s. It was a festival in New York City where rowdy boys collected in parading crews who were given money for some reason, mm. and some of which went door to door begging food. I, I don't really know, but I think we'll do a Thanksgiving history episode one of these days. Right. A true history. Mm -hmm. Going back to that first mythical oh, yeah. Thanksgiving that never happened. Mm. We don't like Columbus around these parts. Get out of here, Columbus. Go back to wherever you came from. I mean, what? <laughs> How does that work? Um. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other American precursor is a Christmas tradition called Belschnickeling. Does Belschnickel sound familiar to you, Kaylin? Andrews? The office. Mm -hmm. Dwight. Yep. This derived from a German mumming ritual known as Pelchnickel. Mm. And this was done in the eastern U.S. and Canada. Groups of people wearing costumes would go door-to-door -door performing tricks in exchange for food and drink. And in Nova Scotia, the point of these costumes was to frighten children, mm -hmm. who would then be asked if they'd been good this year. Ah. And when they said yes, they'd be given treats. Yes. So very uh, Santa Claus. Very Santa Claus. Very Christmas. Just a spooky Santa Claus. Sit on my lap and tell me how good you've been this year. Yikes. That's also a spooky Santa Claus. I've heard you've been a bad... Mm. Please no. Kid. Please no. In some places, people had to guess the identities of these people in costume. These Belschnickels. These Belschnicklers. Like the masked singer. Like the masked singer. I don't watch the masked singer, wow. but I hear that it's that way. I've never seen it. But yeah, they do have to guess who it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those that couldn't be identified would be given special treats. That's important because this particular custom of having to guess the identities and then being given treats if you couldn't appears in some of the early descriptions of trick-or-treating. Right. Um, so this lends credence to the possibility that belschnickling in America directly inspired the early trick-or-treating. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen and heard, you may get into this later, so definitely stop me. Sure. But oh, I, will. I feel like, you know, in older generations, it was almost like a do a trick or like perform your thing. Like they would have you do something in order to earn the candy. I've, it I've became seen that less before. of that, like holding your you know, safety for ransom. Like we're going to mm -hmm. do this if you don't give us this. And it more was like a perform for the adults kind of thing. I, we did have that sometimes, I think. I just remember going to houses when I was very, very small, where it was like yeah. they would expect you to like say the catchphrase of the character that you were wearing. Or like, you know, they'd oh, expect you to do something. I think, yeah, I think that happened a little bit too. And that that's kind of tying in, yeah, the old world traditions of like guising. Because mm -hmm. they'd go around and, yeah, recite and poems and entertain them to the, the, the mumming little plays. Almost like caroling. Yeah, like going around caroling, going a wassailing, whatever. Yeah. Going a souling. And I, I think there's, yeah, there's threads of that too. Because it, yeah. it depends on your personal, like, exposure to it, I guess. Right. If you grew up doing that or thinking that that was normal, then, you know, you're older and yeah. 
you were some of the adults, the elderly people that I trick or treated with, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think some of those did survive the uh, the the generations for sure. Mm-hmm. Carries through. And if Belschnickling did directly inspire trick or treating, that further merges Christmas with yeah Halloween definitely. So the earliest recorded phrase trick or treat comes from Alberta, Canada, in 1927. Hey, Canada. <laughs> What's up? Canada? What's up, Canada? <laughs> A newspaper reported pranksters going door-to-door making demands, giving each homeowner the ultimatum, trick or treat. There we go. So this new custom began to trickle down the U.S. from Canada throughout the 30s. One local newspaper in Oregon reported that young goblins and ghosts employing modern shakedown methods successfully worked the trick-or-treat system. (laughs) That was kind of (laughs) cool. Shakedown methods. Wow. One of the first national mentions was in a publication called The American Home in 1939. And this article was titled, A Victim of the Window Soaping Brigade? No. <laughs> and it calls trick-or-treating the age-old Halloween salutation mm. and says it's an effective method of subverting pranking. Well, because in the area, it wasn't like massively successful in America yet, but in the places where it was being done, it was very successful in keeping children from... Uh, causing mischief Mm -hmm. and messing things up. This is also significant because if there's anything people tend to know about Halloween history in America, it's usually that American mischief reached a fever pitch during the Great Depression. Pranking got so violent during this period that Halloween 1933 was known as Black Halloween. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, everybody was miserable, so I guess I get it. Times were very hard. To put it so simply. Man, okay, so you said 1933. 1933, Black Halloween. Mm -hmm. This involved all the usual vandalism that we've already discussed, plus sawing down telephone poles. Oh my, no. Flipping over personal vehicles, just like Mm -hmm. flipping cars, opening fire hydrants, which, hey, that's pretty fun. (laughs) And taunting the police. Yeah. Which led to excessive amounts of violence. Mm. But they were all white, so I'm sure it was fine. Yeah, I was about to say. I'm sure that they had some privilege in this situation. Probably ended up just shaking hands and being like, well, you know, just stay out of trouble. Those crazy kids. Those crazy kids. Well, got us again, didn't they? Darn. Oh, I hate it. (laughs) Put your nightsticks back in your pants, boys. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Mm. (laughs) So (laughs) cities and towns were desperate to keep kids off the streets. And many places talked a big game about banning Halloween completely. So the, the breaking point here for these local governments is how expensive the damages were, even down to opening the fire hydrants. That just cost a bunch of money because of how much water was wasted. Cities were so poor during the Great Depression that they just couldn't afford the repairs. Right, They couldn't afford to pay for any of this stuff. So that's when they were like, oh my God, this has to stop. Of course, because when it came to money- Of course, no, yeah. Once it costs them money, then then it's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. You mean this can affect me? Wow, I never thought about it like that before. It's going to affect me and my paycheck and my livelihood? Oh, wait, okay. I don't get a bonus this year? Somebody's going to stop these kids. But many people knew that simply banning Halloween wouldn't stop kids from getting up to no good. So a lot of places highly recommended finding constructive alternatives to just outright banning. Right. Like we talked about with the parties and such. Exactly. Lisa Morton says... Towns and civic groups, such as the YMCA and the Boy Scouts, began to offer other ways to celebrate Halloween, including parties, parades, costuming, carnivals, and contests. 
Schools took an active role in entertaining children at Halloween, and soon there was an entire cottage industry based around writing holiday booklets aimed specifically at children and teachers. Mm -hmm. These books included poetry recitations, one-act plays, pageant suggestions, and other theatrical performances that would presumably occupy young minds for the week leading up to Halloween. All the things that we enjoyed and that we liked came from just a need to control. Right. Control the chaos. Yeah. You ready to control this chaos and read this short snippet from this one-act play? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I just sent it to you. Okay. (laughs) You want to be Harold or Bill? Oh, my God. (laughs) This is from a book called The Best Halloween Book from 1931, Hmm. and this play is called Making Jack-O-Lanterns. It's basically just a 1930s version of an after-school special. I guess I'll be Bill. Yeah, you'll be Bill because he has less to say. Perfect. (laughs) I didn't realize yet, but yes, perfect. Your name's Bill. My name's Harold. All right. Can I get an action? And quiet on set. Action. I think I'll go over the tracks and scare the window Mitchell a little. We did that last year and had a lot of fun, didn't we, Bill? Well, it wasn't so much fun when she told the principal about it and we lost all our recesses. Let's think of something different. You know, I, I'd like to do something with mine that would bring pleasure to someone. I can't read this word. Instead. Yeah. Instead of injury, there must be some good that can be done with our jack-o'-lanterns. What do you say, Bill? I think that's a good idea, Harold. That's a right good idea. <laughs> Damn it, kids. You're going off script again. All right. <laughs> But no, seriously, that's what it was. Like that they're just is like very on the carving nose. these jack o' lanterns. Well, it's, and it's it's like you're 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 imitating the behavior, or you're you're uh, modeling the behavior that you want them to imitate. Yeah. To me, it kind of assumes that kids are not as smart as they are. <laughs> if we just if show kids, because we say this all the cool time, can be. part of the thing about children's entertainment in the '80s and '90s is that they didn't make that assumption. They assumed right. that we were intelligent enough to keep up. Mm-hmm. And clearly. In this Depression era, one-act play, <laughs> they did not assume such things. I don't think – I mean, I, I just can't see this being very successful, but it must have done something. But yeah. kids in those days were still playing with blocks I was going to say, they had less to watch and read. Straw. They had less to consume. So yeah. maybe what they did consume was more uh, – it had more staying power. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it did work. I don't know. Everybody came up with an idea of how to pacify rowdy young boys. We're talking – Window decorating contests, costume contests, taking boys to boxing matches, and a plethora of other Halloween-centric ideas for events and distractions that would inevitably be much more affordable than paying for the damages otherwise. And also, let's just cater to the boys. Let's just cater to the boys, because you know what? They need to blow off some steam. They got lots of steam inside of them. We can trust the girls. Yeah. We should, you know, we should use some of these girls. (laughs) To distract the boys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But none of these ideas were quite so successful at entertaining and therefore distracting American youths as the Trails of Terror. Ooh. Further expanding from Halloween party activity pamphlets, parents evolved their house-to-house parties into what ultimately was the origins of the haunted attractions industry. Mm. This stuff's fun. Hey, rides. Yeah. Well, Yeah. Eventually, maybe. that That's more, it's a weird distinction early. There's the haunted attractions industry, and then there's the Halloween attractions industry. And just the Halloween attractions tend to be a bit more family friendly. Sure. But you can still have a haunted, uh, like, hayride. Oh, of I've course. done one of those. Those are Me fun. Me too. So, yeah. But 
These trails of terror through individual houses, gymnasiums, or community centers led to things like Disney's Haunted Mansion ride, yeah, Knott's Scary Farm, and the Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights. Oh my god, I freaking <laughs> love Halloween Horror Nights. <laughs> Which is funny because they started the year I was born in 91, and it was Fright Nights, and then in 92, the year you were born, it became Halloween Horror Nights. And that's sweet. We both get to claim it. Plus all the other pop-up haunted house walkthroughs we see every year, including the Christian-themed haunted event called mm -hmm. The Hell House. Or we called them House of Horrors, which was even That's more true. innocuous. It just made it seem like, come on in. And we talked about this in the last episode a little bit because there are other uh, things that play into the origin of them. That's true. The preaching, etc. I'm just going to read this, yeah, this paragraph from Lisa Morton. Oh, okay. One of the oddest offshoots of both the haunted attractions industry and Christianity's love-hate relationship with Halloween <laughs> is the Hell House. This kind of Christian-themed haunted event presents a series of moralistic tableau under the guise of a traditional Halloween walk-through attraction. There it is. However... Guests don't truly interact with the scenes as they do in a typical haunted house, but are rather passive audience members mm -hmm. for a series of short plays that each present the commission of a sin in a gruesome fashion. Mm -hmm. The last room in a hell house usually involves a prayer meeting with the pastor or minister uh -huh. in which he attempts to convert the paying guests to his church. Absolutely. Hell houses may have first appeared in the 1970s, but they didn't attract major attention until a Colorado pastor named Keenan Roberts began selling a hell house outreach kit. And this is just like layers of this stuff because this is capitalism and evangelicalism together. It is. He's selling a kit. Selling a kit. To make to make it easy for you to do one of these hell houses in your area or with your church. Mm -hmm. You can buy one of these kits for the convenient low cost of just $299. Well then. Intel, that'll tell you everything you need to know about owning and operating a hell house attraction. And for, for additional fees, by the way, you can purchase bonus scenes directly from the source wow. that include gay wedding, <gasps> uh, post-birth abortion, Holy and shit. cyber chick multimedia. Wow. In case you're wondering. Mm. Yeah, they're trying to make a profit off of their preaching, which that's never happened before. Yeah, never. Never. Joel Osteen. <clears throat> Using the fear of hell to to convert. To make money? To, no, no, that's way. never happened before. That's, no. Oh my God, of course not. No, these people are pure heart. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about it. By the way, if you're an evangelical listener, this is not against you. This is <laughs> no. our own trauma around the intentions of certain yeah. groups or people. We, we believe in believing whatever you want. Just don't make it other people's problem. Yeah, honestly. And don't use it for selfish gain. Just or don't, selfish gain, yeah. Don't, don't hurt other and people also, in yeah, the process. Not taking advantage of other people, which is not only what they would have to do to sell the kid, mm -hmm. but also what they would do to everyone who attended a hell house, as I have done myself many times. I have. It's rough. I had a hard time. It's rough. And it's so funny. <laughs> I don't even know how much of this I should get into, but it's really funny to me because I was not part of the groups that would do the hell houses. Yeah. And so when they would lead you into these rooms and they'd have to try like get you to pray and try to convert you, I would then be evangelizing my own fundamentalist belief to the people and saying, instead, how about you look at this verse or this verse where none of these things are accurate? And like, <laughs> I would be flipping it on its head in the room. <laughs> That's so funny. 
Oh my god. Like I went like a step deeper into the the Venn diagram. <laughs> you guys are doing it all wrong. You're not even scary enough. You're not even convincing. <laughs> it wasn't even that. It was just more so like this isn't what you, you know, like biblically yeah, speaking or whatever. Like I was just trying no, to book chapter and verse things. Yep. Mhm. Which wasn't helpful either in any way, shape or no. form. Mm-mm. No. Cuz all the people that were in there mostly <laughs> We're just having a, trying to have a fun Halloween night. It was a way to like, you, you're already a believer. It's a way to bring your friends to a scary haunted event mm-hmm. and like get them converted. And like, it was more so also like a way to make people think, right? If you're, yeah. if you're a Christian, especially in this era that I, so if they weren't really popular until the seventies, they were really in their heyday, I guess, when I was a kid. Right. And in high school. It was started in the 70s by Campus Life. Wow. That Christian organization. So it was like a college Yeah. So it was like a thing. And those yeah. were successful. And then Keenan Roberts just like monetized it and basically commercialized it mm-hmm. and made it a big thing to make a bunch of money on. Wow. Yeah. I just... It's it's wild to think about it in that light. When when I was growing up, it was just it felt like a very grassroots thing from like one church to you know yeah. to another to do, it did or for seem a couple like churches to like come together and put it put it on. Right, right. And yeah, like you said, you as a young teenager, this was like a cool way to evangelize your friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and to proselytize yep. and to like take them on this seemingly fun outing. Yeah, and kind of teach them. You know, a- Meaning oh, Shanghai them at the end of fear and trembling. Really, as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm having mm-hmm. like <laughs> memories triggered, like repressed memories <laughs> oh, yeah? from these haunted houses of horror. And like a lot of them, they would have a kid just sitting by themselves alone in their bedroom, mm-hmm. and they'd have they'd have people dressed as Satan or like demons, oh, yeah. all just swirling around them and like whispering in their ear and stuff. And that was supposed to be depression, (laughs) (laughs) depression and anxiety, because the whole idea was that both of these things are sinful Uh and uh they're, they're demons or it's a like Satan is causing these things. God. Right. I just can't, I can't believe, I mean, they made me feel like shit about myself Mm -hmm. because I knew that was me. Right. Yeah. And then, okay. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Trigger warning, literal trigger warning, um, relating to suicide because in a lot of them, they would have a kid put a fake gun in their mouth and they'd have like Satan behind, like whispering in their ear and they're on the, over their shoulder. If, if I saw that, I blocked it out too. Cause I don't remember that. Oh, I saw it more than once in more than one place and more than one year. Oh my God. I can't believe they could do that, honestly. I really can't. It seems like that should be illegal. <laughs> I oh, couldn't but. agree more. Listener, if you dealt with this, if you walked through that, please know you're not alone. Depression and anxiety aren't sinful. Nope. <laughs> They're human. Mm-hmm. That it, It's just, it's unreal to me. It's okay to feel your feelings, guys. Yeah. Not only is it okay to feel your feelings, it's okay to like not have perfect mental health and it's okay to get help for that. Like, mm-hmm. And it isn't because you're not praying enough or you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't believe, I can't believe what they would perpetuate. And I can't believe the way that it made me feel to the point where I'm literally remembering it right now. But it was horrific. (laughs) Did you ever see uh, like the abortion scenes? I completely blocked that (laughs) out. There there would be like a girl on a bed, like a gurney. So much blood. There was blood everywhere and they would always, she would be screaming, like a doctor would be screaming. Do you (laughs) remember that? screaming. Yes. Like just every chaos because they yeah. wanted you, they, because they were manipulating your like, they wanted you to feel the fear and the chaos. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, 
really the only abortions that could even go the way that they depicted were the ones they would force people into a mm -hmm. back room back those are the unsafe like, ones unsafe. that you're forced to get when it's illegal mm -hmm. making abortion illegal mm -hmm. does not prevent abortions it makes abortions unsafe that's right period it's true it's true i just can't oh my god i forgot about that yeah, this Yikes. is why I bring this up and we keep talking about this stuff over and over again because this is the reality. Like this is the fear they're putting into people yeah. and it's really just traumatizing. It's not helpful Entirely at all. traumatizing. And they yep. took something fun. It's a fun distraction and made it uh, pseudo-educational oh. and uh, extraordinarily traumatizing. Pseudo-educational, but also, yeah, just that that evangelizing yeah. that they were doing and the, the harmful, mm -hmm. harmful like doctrine that they had around those things Wolf. and there's these are like most of them are children like impressionable kids and teenagers going through seeing this <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> all it really does is make it. you super afraid to ask for help yeah honestly at all because you don't want anybody to know that you're going you don't through want anybody to know that you're any sinful. of that stuff oh you you are so right it that keeps you from on. going to your church leaders and saying yes. like, hey i need help completely who are sometimes your only role models when you're in that culture sometimes those are the only people you have to look up to and they make it to where you can't even talk to them. Yeah. It's just because so they, they, messed up. They demonize it. They demonize yeah. you. And then, as we know, faith based on fear is <laughs> just the best kind. Oh, man. Yep. Which is why my whole life has been a nightmare. But <laughs> right. So much fear. Anyway, let's let's cleanse our... So much fear. Let's cleanse our more hallowed than thou palates and uh, <laughs> take a spooky look at what these original trails of terror consisted of tell me so this is a uh <laughs> this is a description of a trail of terror from a party pamphlet in 1937 it's written in a way uh to entertain young boys so i'm going to try to um change those pronouns and make it something we can all enjoy thank you instead so i might trip up but i'm gonna try to just read through it we appreciate you i'm gonna do my best doing the good work an outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts and witches in the cellar or attic hmm Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls. Because that's sanitary. <laughs> yeah, right. Where they can feel their way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners. Damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling touch their faces. At one place, a guard dressed as a dog suddenly jumps out, barking and growling. Doorways are blockaded so that guests must crawl through a long, dark tunnel. And at the end... They'll hear a plaintive meow, 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 of a black kitty cat, meow, and sees a black cardboard cat outlined in luminous paint. Aww. So 1930s haunted house. At one. which point I know I'm saved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the cat's here. <laughs> I'm also thinking through like the meow. OSHA and safety guidelines that I know because now the ever. liability for stuff like this is outrageous because it is it you know you're opening yourself up to just. All the accidents. If you think that's crazy, listen to this. Other tips from this era include a chair wired to deliver mild electric shocks mm. and renting abandoned houses to hold the events inside of. Yep. Let's break some necks and fry some children. How many rusty nails <laughs> and splinters <laughs> and electric, electric did you, shocks? Did you find any statistics on people that... Didn't I'm make sure it's it out there. House. It's not in this book, um, oh but I'm God. sure it's. I'm sure it's out there. That's that's wild to think about. It's wild, but some of the different names. Um, it these pamphlets suggest you know like you go through different 
uh, parts of the haunted houses mm-hmm. and they're all like, they're named. You kind of know what you're going through. Right. Some of these different names, the themes were Madhouse, Tunnel of Terrors, and Dead Man's Gulch. Mm. Some of the ones that I remember, and you can tell me and corroborate the story or not. Some <laughs> of the ones that I remember from the Houses of Horrors, they were like hospitals a lot. And they'd mm-hmm. have, sure. you know, corpses and doc like doctors being or dentists. There were a lot of dentists. Yeah. Houses. Like wicked doctors and stuff. Like yeah. which is yeah. scary. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most a lot of doctors sure. that I've seen in life feel that way. Um Yeah. Mad scientist type. So there's a lot of medical mad science. Lots of medical fear, yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. There were like mirrored rooms I've seen, or they would do like a strobe light, you know? Yes. And yes. and they'd have strobe lights. They would have mannequins hanging. So there'd be multiple mannequins that you would run into as you couldn't see because it was strobing. Mm-hmm. You could only see every few seconds or so. Right. I mean, some of this is fun. Some of it is some of it's thrilling. Yeah. Dangerous. <laughs> yeah, people get really hurt in those. Those mm-hmm. houses, people, people, people die. And I then, mean, as we as we're discussing this, I don't know if it's the time to bring it up or not. But you and I both worked at you know haunted attractions as well, which is so <laughs> yeah, fun but too. That was that was fun because it was more of like a <laughs> historical. It was based off of the like London Underground tours. Yeah. So it was more we, of like ours was more historically like relevant. Yeah. So it was more like educational. That's a haunted tour with a script and everything. That's fun too. Um, but I was a scare actor. Yeah. You did the scare stuff. Yeah. I got to be a scare actor. So I got to jump out at people. And, and I also scare, did yeah. like, I was a plant, which that's difficult by the way, if you've ever done that. So if you have these tours that depart at a certain time, you know, have you, you have groups that go through these haunted tours, right, right. I would have to be a plant. And so I'd go in with the tour and my act, like the, the thing that I did. Like a fiddle leaf fig. Huh, do what? Pl- a plant. Yeah, a plant. Uh huh. I was a fiddly fig. I ruined that was my 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 plant of choice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but really, I would just like go in with these tours and be another you know unsuspecting audience member until we got to a certain room, and then I had to um vomit blood, which I had to put like a blood. Uh, pack it in my mouth (laughs) and uh, do a whole like thing while we talked about yellow fever and Mm. so it was like the the thing about that that they don't really prepare you for is the fact that you have to go through the tour dozens and dozens of times yourself until you get to your part (laughs) it's rough but yeah it it was a fun time. I, it was enjoyable. That was a good October, you know? though. And I'm glad that I did it looking back. It was a yeah. it was a fun thing to do. But man, I'm glad I didn't ever work at any of the houses of horrors. But I knew like no. plenty of my friends that like their youth group would staff the house of horror. Mm-hmm. I had friends. I almost did it. Mm-hmm. I almost worked it one year. A lot of youth groups would do it where they they would you know dress up and yeah. and scare people and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, the one we did was like a at a historic location, but still. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and these also inspired the Halloween attractions industry, like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which is the more friendly, uh, family friendly stuff, corn mazes, pumpkin patches and hay rides and all that. So really the horror Everything, version was first. Yes. And then they, they damped it down rather than ramping Eventually, it up. Eventually. Yeah. Like I, I saw somewhere like corn mazes, uh, became popular in the seventies. Oh, okay. But if it was the civil unrest of the great depression that created the spike in pranking and vandalism. It was the American patriotism of the Second World War that brought it all to a screeching halt. Mm-hmm. The U.S. got involved after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. And by May the following year, the U.S. government started rationing foods rationing. beginning with sugar. Yeah. And this meant that no matter how badly kids wanted to extort their neighbors for sweet treats, sugar was now a luxury. Mm-hmm. And there just wouldn't be enough to go around. Any of my American girl 
<laughs> friends out there, you're <laughs> thinking of Molly because Molly was the American girl from World War II and her book, she oh, had yeah? a Halloween, there was a Halloween book Ooh. and she had, you know, like a popcorn ball and mm -hmm. I think she felt like it was raining and she lost all of her, her stuff. It was kind of sad, but um, yeah, they were rationing sugar. You know, they talked about that in the, in the story. Right. And uh, adults convinced children everywhere that it was their patriotic duty to support their troops by not causing any trouble at home. Mm -hmm. And kids all across the nation vowed to behave on Halloween by having good, clean fun. Man. At least until the war was over. <laughs> <laughs> we can band together in wartime, I guess, but that's yeah, pretty much it. That's pretty much it. And really not even then anymore. Yeah, and barely even then. Especially not now, yeah. Yeah. Totally. But it was also about this time like just before the war and then of course forever after that kids decided they wanted to eat their candy and have their mischief too and they simply moved the pranks to the night before halloween to the mm -hmm. 30th of october thus creating the modern day mischief night and meaning there was really nothing that the unsuspecting suburban homeowner could do <laughs> nothing <laughs> Thanks to all the compounding hardship of the previous decades, the world had seen enough carnage by the 1950s, and trick-or-treating was reinstated as a nostalgic, family-friendly event that would resume the nation's sense of normalcy, mm. capitalizing on that domestic bliss of living out the suburban fantasy that everything was perfect and life was good. Mm -hmm. Any association with a particular religion mm -hmm. was removed from Halloween at this point. Absolutely. Establishing it as a commerce-driven secular holiday focused on spoiling children rotten and sugarcoating the trauma of the collective unconscious. Which is insane to me because a lot of religious folks today don't participate in Halloween for what they believe it represents, not even realizing yeah. that it's only been a secular holiday for, <laughs> you know— 50, not even 50 years. From when they were kids. Yeah. Basically is when the first time it was a secular holiday. Wow. I get into that a little bit more as we get closer to the 80s and 90s. But one thing I'm not really going to get into is how uh, some schools have banned Halloween because it infringes on the freedom of religion. Whoa. Even though it's secular, they're still saying it's a religious holiday. Wow. But So no one can agree. If you're against it, you're <laughs> against it for whatever reason you made up I was going to say, it's mind. really just whatever it needs to be. It's whatever it needs to be. Whoever needs to make the excuse. Halloween, the ultimate scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. And if it's something that you feel is wrong or it endorses something that you don't like, mm -hmm. then you can decide that it's secular and evil. Yeah. And if it doesn't do that, or if you are, you know, more of like a purist about it, you can say it came from this long storied history of right. actually being pretty intertwined with the church. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of why we're doing this series in the first place really is to uh, show yeah. how complicated it is and where it came from. It is, so and that that's the thing. I'm glad that we, I'm glad that you have done this. Trying to correct and, the ignorance of everything surrounding Exactly. Because it is so complicated. It's so it's complicated. so complicated. There's, there's no real right answer. No, there's not. Yeah. Anyway. That's the thing. So when people claim, well, it's all about this. It's like. It actually oh, isn't. <laughs> see, maybe it's about that, but it's about uh, a dozen other things too. Yeah. At the same time. Exactly. So. It's not all about either thing. Yeah. So this is where. Our Halloween history timeline merges with our Origins of Children's Programming timeline. Yeah. From our first two episodes we ever did a year ago. Mm. It all comes together in post-World War II America, when the economic boom resulted in rapidly expanding suburbs and cookie-cutter lifestyles straight out of homemaker magazines and party pamphlets. <laughs> 
And as discussed in our origin series, this is when advertisement exploded and in-home televisions allowed for marketing a surplus of products to children during commercial breaks and oftentimes during the show itself. Mm -hmm. So that all explains why there was so much programming for children. But the Halloween timeline itself goes a long way toward explaining why so much of the programming was allowed to exist within the horror genre Mm -hmm. with darker, more frightening and disturbing entertainment. And this is because of the cultural embrace of Halloween as a child's holiday, Mm -hmm. accepting and embracing this coexistence of children and monsters. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Hey, wow. Wow. (laughs) So thanks to the mass marketing of Halloween imagery and spooky merchandising, and with retailing trends emphasizing candy and costumes, this nostalgic era is considered the golden age of trick-or-treat. Absolutely. And we grew up in it. I mean, we really did. We grew up in the afterglow. True. Sort of. That's true. Trick-or-treating first appeared in children's media as early as 1947 in the kids' magazines uh, Jack and Jill and Children's Activities. Hmm. And it was further popularized when it was depicted in Peanuts comic strips in October oh, 1951. Yeah. yeah. In the following year, what really brought it to the forefront of American pop culture was when Disney released its cartoon titled Trick or Treat, featuring Donald Duck and his three nephews, Huey, Huey Dewey, Dewey, and Louie. Louie. <laughs> what manner of ghoul is this? And now everybody was doing it. Not just pockets, not just neighborhoods, but the whole nation. Costumes before the 1950s were often homemade and were your typical witches, ghosts, mm-hmm. devils, cats, and such. Which were, were my like first costumes, too. Yeah, those just stayed popular. Mm-hmm. But those were the kind of things you can make at home. Right. You could yeah. buy paper masks from stores, like those same paper goods companies that were making all the postcards. Mm-hmm. They were making paper masks. Or you can make your own paper mache mask at home and talk about Uncanny Valley. Have you ever looked up old <laughs> oh, yeah. Halloween, old Halloween costumes? costumes? Yeah. They're scary. Definitely. Very <laughs> They're scary. So scary. They're looking. so much scarier than anything now. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. There were box costumes in department stores like Sears during the 1930s, but these were very expensive. So only rich people, unaffected by the Great Depression, could afford them. Mm-hmm. But manufacturing techniques evolved after the war, which led to things like plastic and silk screening onto other cheap material like vinyl and rayon. And this mass production of costumes and masks made it much more affordable to be anything you wanted without all the fuss and hard work. And that led to a party city. For sure. Spirit Halloween. (laughs) So now you could be a princess Mm -hmm. or a mummy or a clown or cowboy. You could also be your favorite movie or TV show character, mm-hmm. like Howdy Doody or Shirley Temple. There's even Lucille Ball or Batman. Oh, for sure. And now that rationing was over as well, candy companies got their sugar back and their mojo. And their groove. And with the return of sugar, the boom of advertisement and the establishment of family-oriented trick-or-treat as America's favorite Halloween activity, candy companies seized upon every last sugary morsel of it launching national advertising campaigns specifically aimed at Halloween. Mm -hmm. The biggest candy-consuming holiday. That's right. Now. Mm -hmm. And one of the more famous Halloween myths is that candy companies invented Halloween to sell candy. (laughs) Um, We know this isn't true. No. Couldn't be further from the truth. It just was convenient for them. It was. 
they absolutely took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. This is capitalism, baby. That's right. Like Norman Rockwell paintings depicting older, simpler, and perhaps even better days, Halloween was now exquisitely idealized in a similar way through a textured blend of early American nostalgia and old world fear. And it was specifically marketed to us in a way that convinced us we don't just like Halloween, but we need it. Mm -hmm. And this is still the case today. Maybe even more so in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, if not more. So the the McDonald's Happy Meal oh, yeah. came around in the 80s. Halloween buckets, right? The Halloween buckets, the ghost. That's apparently potentially possibly coming back this year. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And that was such a staple of a lot of people's like memory of Halloween mm -hmm. and using those McDonald's buckets for your sugar treating for years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And before it really became popular, candy companies didn't target trick-or-treating all that much. Um, candy's first involvement with Halloween, like an American Halloween, was at Halloween parties in the form of taffy that kids could pull mm -hmm. as part of the entertainment. And the first mass-produced candy that was popular for Halloween were these little sugar pellets that people used to fill candy bowls. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's like an early Pez or something. Gotcha. Or what are those little little sugary... What are they called? Not a Smarty? Smarty, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just looks like medicine. <laughs> Eventually, people started making homemade candy that they would serve at parties or hand out to appease pranksters. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, until the 1950s, Halloween was sleeping on what would now become its most famous and iconic treat, candy corn. <laughs> that is not so popular today. Some folks are still sleeping on it. <laughs> I still like it. I like it. So candy corn's origins are murky because it wasn't a wild success until it was mass produced by the Golitz Company. Um, but we know it was first manufactured in the 1880s by the Wonderly Candy Company in Philadelphia. And it was called Chicken Feed. <laughs> that is what it looks like, to it be is. fair. Its mascot was a crowing rooster, and the slogan was, something worth crowing for. Mm. Its orange, yellow, and white colors represented autumn and the corn harvest. And it was initially marketed to the children of farmers who made up about half of the American labor force at that time. Mm -hmm. And then once Halloween became autumn's main candy purchasing event, candy corn skyrocketed to number one, at least until it was surpassed easily by chocolate. Oh, for sure. In the coming years. Speaking of our exports. Yep. That cacao. <laughs> So one of the main reasons Big Candy was able to stake its claim on Halloween is because the products were individually wrapped and packaged in small portions. So this was not only easier to acquire and hand out mm -hmm. than homemade treats. Still is. But parents on the whole preferred their own kids eating candy that had been carefully and safely wrapped, mm -hmm. not made in someone's kitchen. Yeah, still true. <laughs> and maybe they were right to not be so trusting. Maybe so. In 1964, a woman in New York named Helen File decided that some of her trick-or-treaters were getting a little too old to be coming around for her candy. Mm. So that year, she decided to teach them a lesson. She handed out dog biscuits, ant poison, and steel wool. Oh my god. And she insisted it was a prank of her own, but she was still arrested and convicted of child endangerment. Yeah. You have some sadistic tendencies to, to mm. conjure up something like this, mm, 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 mm. for sure. So Helen File created the first wave of stranger danger in America. Wow. Because this was when people officially began to wonder for the first time just how safe it was to accept candy from strangers. Because mm -hmm. sometimes 
it's just not candy. Wow. And by the later 1960s, there was no shortage of Halloween urban legends about children biting into razor blades as they chomp on their candy apples, and kids getting sick and even dying from candy that had been laced with either LSD or arsenic. The big scare this year is fentanyl. For sure. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's pissing me off, though. I know. It's not going to be in your Halloween candy. At least we hope not. It's not going to be. But I mean, we, we've talked about It's this never before. been in Halloween candy, it's ne ever. These things have never been in Halloween candy, like you just said. It's never happened. It was all rumors based on, like you said, this one thing that really did happen. And of course, so, there was also the Chicago Tylenol murders of uh, oh, yeah. 1982, yep. which was very scary. I've done case, like public relations case studies on that. Yeah, so that did happen. But these other things were just rumors. The villain of these urban legends is sometimes known as the Halloween sadist. Yeah. A monstrous person with a sick desire to harm random children by giving them candy that's been tampered with. By the 1980s and 90s, these stories were exacerbated by the satanic panic mm -hmm. when Christians saw fit to further spread panic and fear by insisting that you shouldn't let your children participate in trick-or-treat because kids are harmed and even killed every year by anonymous Satan worshipers. Yeah. Yes. Beyond just the general, don't affiliate with Halloween because it's satanic, mm -hmm. in that satanic panic era. As the story goes, these psychos put razor blades, poison, needles, and even fish hooks in your children's candy because Halloween is the devil's birthday. And the murdered children are actual ritual sacrifices being offered up to the evil one, who used to go by the name Samhain, mm. which is the festival of death that Halloween is based on. And during this festival, pagan druid priests would kidnap Celtic children to offer them up as human sacrifices to the Lord of Death. And these Christian groups back up all these claims in their books and on their web pages by quoting who else but Charles Valency. Oh my God. Throwing it back to episode one. Going all the way back. History of Halloween. And they expounded on that too. Lisa Morton pulled a quote from one of these books and it says, As part of the celebration, people donned grotesque masks and danced around the great bonfires, often pretending they were being pursued by evil spirits, while the jack-o'-lantern may have originated with the, with the witch's use of a skull with a candle in it to light the way to coven meetings. Oh my God. <laughs> They're just like making all this shit up. None of it's real. No. None of it's real. They don't have any of the history. They don't have any of the mm -mm. surrounding context. Nothing. They just made up some stuff. Right. And then, yeah, they quote this guy that was making up stuff. Mm. And they, they use the satanic panic of the time yep. to fuel that fire. Oh yeah. Just, uh... Chopping down those hillsides and burning everything they got till there's <laughs> nothing left to burn. Yeah. And even the Vatican came out in 2009 to claim that Halloween was anti-Christian. Wow. Officially making Halloween the bastard child of Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. They liked Halloween for a while. They did. But as Lisa Morton puts it, if Christians are to ban celebrations on the basis of their pagan origins, they might want to start with Christmas and Easter. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Just fully agreed. And y'all better believe that we here at That's Pretty Dark will be doing frightfully nostalgic research projects mm -hmm. on the origins of those holidays in coming years. As we should. We absolutely will. Man. Just because they made up so much of our sense of nostalgia on Definitely. the whole. Yeah. Most of my memories are celebrating holidays. these holidays with family. Yep. 
and getting time off school because of it, <laughs> you know, like looking forward to them so much. Definitely. Speaking of that, it's wild to me that all of these rumors and hearsay and he said, she said, and just all of this panic and fear mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. led to one of the things that I remember most about each and every single Halloween. What's that? After trick-or-treating. My sister and I would have to come inside. We weren't allowed to eat any candy while we were walking. If we did eat candy, we had to get our dad to look at it while we were walking. Yeah. He had to check yeah. it, make sure that it was sealed, et cetera. We had that too. And then whenever we would get home, I just remember every year we would get into the living room and we would dump out all of our candy on the floor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a lot of like, that's mine. That Don't touch that. That's like making sure we didn't <laughs> mix our candy. And yeah, yeah. having our parents, you know look through every bit of it and they would make sure that it was, if anything wasn't completely sealed, they would immediately throw it away. Mm-hmm. And it was like a huge thing. Like from the time I was very, very small, I remember them right. just like, do not eat anything until we look at it. Anything looked less than perfect, throw it away. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. No, I had the I'm same sure thing. listeners are, have these kinds of, yeah. The exact same Cause thing. they, you don't, you know, even if it is hearsay, even if it is a rumor, you don't want to be the one person (laughs) that it happens to, right? You don't want this tragedy to come to your family. Right. It's crazy. I mean, but that just fuels the fear aspect of the nostalgia. I swear, like early days of Facebook, I swear there there were news articles going around about kids that did eat you know, a needle or something. Mm-hmm. And it may have happened in those very small, isolated incidents to me that seem way more like the, uh, what did you say her name was? Helen File. Helen File. Yeah. It seems way more isolated like that than definitely not yeah. any kind of like coordinated no. well, satanic attack. <laughs> I'll get into it. People did, quote unquote, find things in their candy because they put it there. Mm. The satanic panic had such a far reach in the 80s and 90s that hospitals and doctor's offices were offering their services to do candy inspections. Wow. In yeah. some cases, they were literally x-raying candy. I remember this. To check for harmful objects. Mm-hmm. And in no way did eating that x-rayed candy give anybody colon cancer at all, <laughs> I'm sure. But guess what? Nothing was ever found. Wow. Because the only people putting anything in their candy are the children themselves. Mm. Every few years, there's a story in the news yeah. about a kid who found something in their Halloween candy. And just last year, there was a really, really big story about some teenagers who found like needles or something, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when I decided I wanted to do a Halloween Urban Legends episode, Mm -hmm. which led to this. But in all these cases, it's turned out to be a prank, a Halloween prank. Mm -hmm. And the kids always cave under the pressure of both media and police attention, admitting that it was just a Halloween prank gone too far. Right. So it, it is in the news. You did see those stories. But they're frauds. They're not real. Wow. So kids once used fairy lore to pull mischief and blame it on fairies. And kids now use urban legend to pull mischief and blame it on the Halloween sadist. Yeah. For, I don't know, attention? Mm -hmm. Just to see everything get all crazy? I feel like that happens today. Kids love to just do the shit for no reason. Pull in the fire alarm. Just causes chaos. Cause chaos sometimes. Because they want to perpetuate these urban legends. And it does because so many people just take that at face value. They don't follow it up. And I guarantee you that all my friends probably look through their kids' Halloween candy too. And I'm not faulting anybody that does that. I think I mean, sure, our parents no, were trying to be it. good parents and there's, you know, it doesn't hurt anything yeah, you, to check. Yeah. I, I don't think it's wrong to do. It's not a bad practice. It's just- You should be yeah. wary of everything that you 
you eat, not just Halloween candy. True. (laughs) Be careful about everything. Hey, don't take a drink from someone you don't know at a bar. Mm. That's just common sense. Of course, yeah. If you want to get fentanyl, go take a drink from somebody you don't know who just wants to drug you because they're Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. Or don't do cocaine (laughs) because that's what's – they're using fentanyl to cut cocaine Mm because it's cheaper than coke. But guess what? It's a hell of a lot more expensive than just f***ing Halloween candy. Absolutely. No one's going to put that in your Halloween candy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm mad about this. (laughs) I'm mad about it. Because it does take some of the magic and some of the whimsy out of the ritual. It does. It does. But it adds the fear. So It adds the fear. It's hard to say. I just want to keep – just want to keep the Halloween sadist and the evil witch giving out poison apples and all those things. I want to keep those characters in the dark houses on Halloween. And you know not to go to their houses, but we get to laugh and point and say, yeah, something evil lives mm-hmm. there. Don't go to that house. And everyone steers clear and no one goes and everyone's safe. But we still get to have the fun fear of what's in the abandoned house. But it's way over there. <laughs> <sighs> Let's just keep it fun. Stop ruining everything for everybody all the time. <laughs> anyway. I do wish that it wasn't so, like, we didn't have to be so wary of every, so everything. So wary of everything. But we do. But it's still good to check your kids' candy. I mean, yeah, just, we're, we, yeah. let's just be real clear here. That's pretty dark. We are not advocating that you don't check. <laughs> no, check your kids' candy. But you should, uh, yeah, again, check everything that your kids are given by strangers. Yeah, exactly. Don't let your kids eat anything from anybody mm-hmm. unless you check it first. And test your drugs before you do them. Yeah, for Be real. smart, people. Better safe than sorry. Talk about, you know. Cops, they'll they'll check it for you. <laughs> you can test your drugs before you do them. You can get testing kits. I know. I've 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 just seen like different uh, police like departments and stuff say, "Hey, bring us mm-hmm. your, you know, we'll check it for you." We'll check your drugs. But we for don't you. like the cops either. Mm-mm. As a whole, listener, dumb kids thought I was a real cop. <laughs> so anyway, urban legends are fun, but they're dangerous because they can be misused. Researchers have spent years trying to find one legitimate case of candy tampering in association with Halloween and trick-or-treating. Turns out there's just the one. In what is one of the most disturbing cases of reality imitating fiction, an eight-year-old boy named Timothy O'Brien died on Halloween night, 1974, after eating a pixie stick laced with potassium cyanide. Oh my God. So he and his friends and his dad had gone trick-or-treating in a different neighborhood than they were used to. And Timothy's father, Ronald, didn't know any of the houses or the people there and couldn't remember which house had given out the pixie sticks. Well, it turns out Ronald, the father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, had just recently taken out life insurance policies on his two kids. Oh my God. Um, But not himself or his wife. So that's a bit odd. Um, And it also came to light that he'd been asking around about cyanide and how to get some. Hmm. You don't say. Yeah, it's it's really strange. What a coincidence, really. the darndest thing. Yeah, so he did it. Yeah. And he was convicted and he was executed in like 84, I believe. Holy cow. Yeah, he was put to death because he killed his son and almost killed his daughter, but they'd gotten help in time to save her, but not his son. Uh, So the reality is the Halloween sadist is a myth. The Candyman is not real, and candy tampering is an urban legend. And we hope it stays that way. But because of its wide acceptance as both a truth and a fear, Ronald Clark O'Brien was able to use the urban legend as a smokescreen to kill his son. Mm -hmm. He literally told reporters before they caught, before they knew it was him, we'd heard the stories, you know, we'd heard about, you know, all the warnings to check your candy, and we just almost didn't go out this year. We just almost, I wish we hadn't. Mm. He did it himself. 
It's crazy. So that's why I'm mad about it because it gives people like him an out, a way to, to do it and blame somebody else. Yeah. Regardless of whether he did do it or not, he never confessed. And people took that as proof that candy tampering is real, mm. leading to all the educational programs and warnings to children about throwing away any and all unwrapped treats, wow. including apples and nuts. Mm -hmm. Killing an ancient tradition. Yeah. You can still have it yourself, but you can't give it to anybody. Not taking it from other people for the most part. Yeah. We had a house that gave out apples in my neighborhood. I'm pretty sure I've had that happen. Yeah. We were just, we just threw them away. We were told not to eat them. Yeah. Same. We yeah. threw them away. It's crazy. We hope that that, yeah, remains the one and only case. Well, and that's we the hope thing. that. We hope yeah. it never happens, right? Check your candy. Be smart. Be safe. Where did that happen again? I think, well, it was in Texas. Okay. I think maybe Houston area. Gotcha. Yeah. There's your dose of true crime on That's Pretty Dark. We don't do it often, <laughs> but... Uh. Yeah, but when it calls for it. When it calls for it. But speaking of monsters and Halloween, it wouldn't be a nostalgia podcast about dark entertainment from our childhoods if we didn't address the impact of monster culture and Halloween cinema on late 20th century pop culture. Ooh. So we will likely expound on more classic horror cinema as we continue our podcast journey. But for today... We'll just say that monster movies were always really popular. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the original classics were made in the 30s during the Great Depression because one of the few things people could actually afford to do was go see a movie, mm -hmm. unlike today. Yeah. <laughs> and with a TV in nearly every household by the 50s and the introduction of shock theater TV in October 1957, monster movies experienced something of a renaissance which is kind of what led to the success of horror cinema on the whole. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about the generations of writers and filmmakers creating from their own sense of nostalgia, which also feeds into the concept of a 30-year cycle. Mm -hmm. Like today, we're inspired by the 80s and 90s. They were inspired by the 50s and 60s, and then they were inspired by the 20s and 30s. So not only was it now super popular in the 50s and 60s to dress up as Frankenstein's monster or his bride, Mm -hmm. Or like Dracula, the mummy, Wolfman, whatever. But it was also commonplace to end a night of trick-or-treating with a monster movie. Heck yeah. And don't even get me started on the monster mash. <laughs> I'll do a graveyard smash if you <laughs> oh my God. threaten me with a good time. Man, I can't hear monster mash without just being a child on Halloween. I know. That's just what it takes me to. It's the nostalgia for these times that led other filmmakers to build on that nostalgia later in their lives, which is what created all the horror pop culture that we grew up on as kids mm -hmm. from John Carpenter's Halloween, yep. which invented slasher films by using that thrilling sense of Halloween danger and fear to Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial, <laughs> which so beautifully captured that aching sense of suburban Halloween nostalgia. Mm -hmm which also I was watching earlier today. <laughs> it truly is one of the scarier, like one of the movies that scared me more than, yeah, you know. Yeah, it got me a lot. Yeah, more than almost anything. And yeah. a lot of people feel that way too. We're going to cover E.T. at some point. Mm -hmm. For sure. We know that that was like very formative. It was formative for a lot of people. Yeah. But you're right. It has that wistful, sad. It's very, it's so sad. It's almost too sad. Mm -hmm. And then you have the layered fear on top of the sadness. Right. Right. Like a lot of the movies we talk about. <laughs> exactly. Like I was about to say, yeah, all these things from, from that era paved the way for 
every film and TV show that we now find frightfully nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Like, Are You Afraid of the Dark and Hocus Pocus and Tower of Terror. The sadness <laughs> is there every time. And every single Tim Burton film. Yeah. <laughs> including hundreds of other examples. It's just really interesting to me how adults have always been afraid for children on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. Ever since the, the Celtic fear of spirits on Samhain and the medieval fears of like, witches and the devil, and now in modern times, where we just replaced all those things with devil worshippers and anonymous psychos. And boogeymen. And boogeymen. All these things have been invented. Mm-hmm. We've made all of them, down to the Hollywood horror icons. We've created all of these things to fear. They are monsters of our own devising. Exactly. Built them. We need fear to the point that we will create monsters just to have them to be afraid of. Don't we know it? (laughs) Isn't it crazy? Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot today, trying to figure out kind of what that means and where that comes from. And I was recently watching a Goosebumps episode (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh, just from the mind of R.L. Stein, um, this character in an episode was saying that like we create monsters because it's easier to be afraid of something like that, like a monster, than it is to fear the uncertainty of life. Yeah. It's easier to know, it's easier to assign a name and face to something than it is to have that unknown. Right. Yeah. Always. And it's easier to do that than to confront the really, like the real emotions that are behind a lot of it. Right. Or the core traumas that are behind a lot of it. It's like it it helps us make sense of everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's why horror for children is so important because it helps them understand things like death, more difficult concepts of life. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It helps us just make sense of everything. And I know that's something that we've talked a lot about is, you know, we always say you're you're never really alone. Mm -hmm. And that comes from conversations we've had about like why people come together to tell ghost stories. Because it's better to be afraid of something in the dark than to believe that there is nothing mm-hmm. in the dark. To unite around that. It's unifying. Yeah, it's just... Whew. A common enemy. It will unite. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we time. create things to fear because it's just better than the alternative. It's better for our, our community, really, mm-hmm. and our, our brain, because we need that. And that's, you know, that's why humans have always collected around bonfires to tell scary stories. And this is why we have monster culture... Because, you know, we need to fear and blame something other than the uncertainty of life. Because it's, I mean, it's so hard to come to grips with that. It's so difficult. It is. Even as grown people. <laughs> it definitely meant that's why the Celts had Samhain. Mm-hmm. Their ancestors could come back. And it's just as hard for us today as it was for them. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just as hard. Just we know so hard. much more. We have so much more knowledge. Yeah. But it's still just as difficult to be alive. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like this is what Halloween's really all about, at least for me. Yeah. Um, it's a safe place to explore fears, to remember that you will die and accept death as an aspect of life that doesn't have to be as scary as we think it is. Because it's a time when life and death are the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's a time when the dead can return to the land of the living. And that's a little bit easier to digest. It takes some of the permanence away from... Death. The absence, the total absence. We don't do well with that as humans at all. It's rough. Thomas Hardy once said about bonfires, to light a fire is the instinctive and resistant act of man when at the winter ingress, the curfew is sounded throughout nature. Hmm. So to close on this series, I will say, 
all the things we do today to celebrate Halloween. It's all just lighting bonfires, watching scary movies and wearing costumes and baking and eating candy, decorating our houses with spooky stuff, carving pumpkins, or even enjoying all things pumpkin spice. Whatever you do to observe Halloween is the instinctive and resistant act of your own humanity when winter and seasonal depression <laughs> are coming and the curfew is sounded throughout nature. Ouch. And because of this, Halloween is not a celebration of fear. It's a celebration of the overcoming and the conquering of fear. Amen. Snaps to that. I'll take my bow. <laughs> I'll take my bow. I could not agree more. We all, and it, you know, online in the internet culture, like I was mm -hmm. saying in the last 10 years, we all recognize how much Halloween does for us, knowing that this winter is around the corner. Yep. And as much yep. as, you know, as difficult as that can be <laughs> for some people, even in modern society, mm -hmm. Halloween has become this beacon, this bonfire, just like you said. Absolutely. It's something to look forward to. It's something to, you know, the Halloween celebration, you and I, the whole month of October and even September, we yeah. <laughs> take as much of it as we can for that purpose because as much as we, can. we do find joy there. Mm -hmm. And we have to take it where we can get it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. to be bleak or anything. You have to. But we have to. No, I, I think that's why Halloween exists. And I think that's also, uh, so Caitlin knows. This was like the fifth conclusion I wrote because I couldn't quite decide on how I wanted to close this series. I wasn't sure, like, where are all the points converging? What's the main yeah. focus here? And we made it through our timeline. We made it through know, our timeline. We, we got here. But one of the things I was originally writing about was how you and I embrace Halloween on a regular basis. Yeah. And that's really why we want to do this podcast because this is also our own beacon of light. Totally. We're talking about childhood fear and danger and horror, but... It's what makes us feel alive because mm -hmm. we are able to embrace memento mori mm -hmm. and allow for that fear to, to feel it and understand it. And that helps us make sense of the world yep. and life because life's hard. Very. Life sucks. <laughs> but just like you're saying, these are the things we can do to make it so much more bearable. Mm -hmm. And also together. Just like the British youths doing their rituals. The, the British youths. You know, these are our rituals. Mm -hmm. In modern times. Absolutely. So go to your costume parties. Go to your parties. Eat your candy. Go drink. Go <laughs> get a pumpkin spice latte. Life is it. too short not to. Yeah. Hell yeah. And if you don't like Halloween and you've listened thus far, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I hope we hope uh, you enjoy your Christmas season. <laughs> <laughs> or if you don't if you don't live somewhere that, that celebrates Halloween and you don't really know what it's all about or you want to understand more of it. Yeah, we, we hope, hope that, that yeah. You, we, you know, we taught you something about it. We hope you learned something and that this is what it means for us, because um, there are lots of cultures. And if I'm going to go and shout out once again, Lisa Morton's book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. She has whole chapters on how Halloween is celebrated in other countries. Mm -hmm. You know, we focused on the Celtic journey from you know, all through the British Isles to America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just an American celebration. Sure. And we don't we don't claim that. No, but we wanted and to shed light. You can enjoy it too. So I've seen, you know, Reddit, right. the internet, I've seen people mention, you know, why do Americans go so hard for Halloween? Yeah. Like why is it such a thing in America? And maybe this series has given you an idea of why that is. Yeah, or hopefully. if not, you can just hopefully appreciate that a lot of us are just and a lot of things about life, not just us as people, <laughs> but a lot of things about life are kind of miserable. Sure. And sure. You know, to mitigate that, this is just one way that people find joy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like just letting people like what they like is a big soapbox of mine. I just get very frustrated when people 
like shit on other people's not me too you know as long as they're not harming anyone right yeah it just doesn't make sense to me why you won't just allow people to enjoy what they enjoy and for some of us that thing is halloween (laughs) and always (laughs) has been and always will be amen all year long Mm. yeah if you visit either mine or christian's house you'll see (laughs) the decor doesn't really go away (laughs) no i keep little pumpkins year round they're tiny little pumpkins oh yeah on your mantle well, that's all I've got for this series. Wow. Thank you, Christian. Round of applause. <laughs> Listener, are you clapping in your seat wherever you Thank are? Thank you. Thank you. Great job. Yeah, well, we hope that uh, this has brought a little bit of spooky, scary <laughs> skeleton fun to your October so far. We've had yes. a lot of fun. I cannot wait to rest my poor little brain. Oh, yeah. Christian has and, been uh, going hard on this research. Yeah. But it's been worth it. I've loved every second of it when I was not sleeping and I was uh, had bags under my eyes and I was a walking <laughs> skeleton person. We've all learned a lot, I think, through this series. We've learned a lot about each other. I think it was a very appropriate way to ring in our second year of That's Pretty Dark. Hell yeah. So y'all get pumped for some Hocus Pocus. That's right. Next week. Next week we're, we're going to start on poking that hocus. <laughs> we're going to poke the hocus starting next week y'all there's so much hocus pocus media out there so if you choose to listen to ours we appreciate you exactly so we appreciate you guys we'll just say uh merry halloween merry halloween early jolly halloween y'all <laughs> um <laughs> sacred Sawin. grandiose all hallowtide there you go i'll take it enjoy your mischief <laughs> all right we're gonna go make some mischief. thanks for listening guys make good trouble Ooh. you know Getting in trouble. Bye. We'll see you next week. The whole night through, little scalawags with fiendish gags can make it tough on you. So when ghosts and goblins by the score, ring the bell on your front door. Better not be stingy, or your nightmares will come true. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark. Written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.